There's a, there's a new show on, on Netflix that my wife and I watched recently. It's, it's called Seven Days Out. Seven Days Out. And it's a documentary style show. And what it does is it covers the events of the week leading up to the day of a big event. And so some of the, some of the episodes, one of the episodes is about the Kentucky, the Kentucky Derby. So uh, it's a documentary of what it's like the week leading up to the Kentucky Derby. Another episode, one of the ones we watched, is about the Westminster Dog Show and all the behind-the-scenes work that goes into preparing for this, this massive dog show. One is about a NASA launch, and then my favorite one was about, uh, surprise, surprise, a restaurant. Uh, it was about the reopening of a restaurant in New York City known as Eleven Madison Park. And 11 Madison Park has just recently been uh, declared to be the number one restaurant in the world. The number one restaurant in the world. And it's right here in New York City. And no, I have not eaten there yet. And part of the reason is, is that the tasting menu is $315 a person. $315 a person for a meal. When I did the math, do you know that that is 78 Chick-fil-A sandwiches? 78 <laughs> Chick-fil-A sandwiches, or four lunches for me. So I, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, going to wait a little bit till I go to 11 Madison Park. Seven days out. It's an interesting show. If, if the first part of Luke chapter 4, if the passage that we're going to study this, more, this morning was a Netflix original documentary, it might have been called 40 Days Out. Because this passage covers the final 40 days of preparation leading up to a really big event. And the big event was the launching of Jesus' public ministry. Now, when we look at these 40 days and we ask, well, how did Jesus spend his last 40 days preparing for public ministry? We might be surprised to see what he did. And this morning, I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 4. I'm reading to you from the ESV. It'll be on the screens. It's in your handout. And I'll read to you verses 1 to 15. It says this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. That seems like a bit of an understatement to me. 40 days, he was hungry. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, there's a third temptation, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, or it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all, all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Well, why do we have this story? Why do we even know this story happened? Earlier this year, I was walking out 
to get the mail, our mailbox is at the end of the road, and, and it was a beautiful day, and so I walked out there to get the mail, and I, I went, I grabbed our mail, and as I started to walk back towards the church, it was so beautiful, the sun was shining, you guys remember what the sun looks like? The sun was shining, and uh, I just closed my eyes and just started to walk back towards the church with my head up like this, and within four steps, I stepped off the side of the driveway, turned my ankle, and fell face first into the grass with the mail scattered everywhere. And I did first exactly what you would do. I looked around to see if anybody saw. And once I realized nobody saw, I had a decision. Do I tell anybody that this happened, or do I just make this my little personal embarrassing secret? And obviously now I've told, so you, you all know. Why do we have this story? We only have this story because Jesus told it. No one else was there. The devil didn't go around telling this story. He was, he's defeated in this story. We have this story because Jesus told it. Now, why did he tell it? I think there's a few reasons why Jesus would have told this story to his followers. Number one, to reveal the type of Messiah that he was. He's a very different Messiah than what the Jewish people were anticipating. And in these temptations, we see that by what he turns his back toward, he's not this sort of typical ruler or or king. He's a different sort of Messiah with a different set of values. The second thing that I think he wanted us to know from this is uh, some things about the nature of temptation and how the enemy of our soul wants to drag us down and how do we overcome. But What he also wanted us to see, I believe, and it's very easy to miss, and this is what I really want to focus on this morning, is he wanted us to see what is it like when you live a life led by the Holy Spirit, life in the Spirit. And of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke is the writer who gives the most emphasis to the Holy Spirit. And it probably shouldn't surprise us because Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which very much emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church. But did you notice that when I read this story, the story is bookended by two references to the Holy Spirit. It starts like this, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, the Jordan River, where he had just been baptized in water by John the Baptist, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So two times in one verse, in one sentence, it mentions the Spirit. But then after the temptation, in verse 14, it says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So this morning, I want us to learn three things about the Holy Spirit. Three things about the Spirit. And I'm going to frame this talk by saying there are things that sometimes we think or we believe or we've been taught or we've misunderstood Scripture to think that the Holy Spirit keeps us from certain things. And in this account, we learn that the Holy Spirit does not keep us from these things, okay? So here's the first one. Sometimes we believe that the Holy Spirit keeps us from hard times. But the first truth this morning is this. The Spirit doesn't keep you from the wilderness. The Spirit doesn't keep you from the wilderness. In verse 1, it says that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. So the Spirit's leading Jesus into one final stage of preparation prior to his public ministry. Jesus just got baptized in water, and now the Holy Spirit's like, there's one final stage of preparation for you. And I'm sure Jesus was wondering, what's my final stage of preparation going to look like? And where does Jesus find himself? In the wilderness, all alone. I think sometimes our tendency as human beings or as Christians is to think that any wilderness experience that we encounter is the work of the enemy. And it's the enemy who drags us into the wilderness. Or at least we certainly don't think it's the work of God. But you can't miss this here. 
The enemy didn't lead Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And I want you to hear this this morning. It wasn't a place of punishment. It was a place of preparation. And there are seasons of life, and some of you may find yourself this morning in what you would consider to be a wilderness, whether it's a health-related wilderness, whether it's an emotional or mental or relational or financial situation that you say, I'm in a bit of a wilderness desert experience right now. And I think the Spirit wants to remind you, this is not a place of punishment for you. This is a place of preparation for you. The Spirit is preparing you for something. Just uh, this Friday night, I was talking with a couple in our church and uh, the wife was sharing with me a little bit about her job. And she works in the city, and she helps people who are coming off unemployment, or who are on, empo- on unemployment, who are trying to find jobs. And her job is to help them find a job. And I said, that must be such a rewarding thing to do, to help people find work. And uh, she mentioned to me, you know, there was a time when I was on unemployment, not too long ago. And as we were talking, we realized her time that she spent on unemployment prepared her for the job she now does. It gave her a greater heart for the people who are coming in because she knows what it was like to walk in their steps, right? And sometimes we go through things and we're like, God, I wish you would have just kept me from those things. And let me be clear, God is never the source of evil. God is not the source of temptation. He does not delight in wickedness and he does not delight in your struggle. But God will use the circumstances of our lives in a broken world in which we find ourselves to prepare us for something greater because he's a redeeming God and he's always preparing us. So what do we learn when we're in the wilderness? few things. I think we learn about our limitations, right? When you're stripped down from everything that you normally lean on, your go-to sources of strength, when you realize how little power and little control you actually have. Have you ever gotten to that moment where you, something's happening in your life and all of a sudden you realize, I don't have any control. The power I thought, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. And if you ever think you have more power than you actually do, take a kid to Target, walk through the toy section, and try to convince them they don't need a toy. You, you'll feel powerless and, and out of control very quickly. Personal experience. When we're in the wilderness, we also learn about what's our true source of strength. Where does our hope really lie? What are we really trusting in? And the wilderness has a way of exposing our false gods, our idols, the things that we would put our hopes and trust in. And if the wilderness only does that for us, what a gift. What a gift to be in the wilderness and to finally see, here are the things that compete in my heart for the place that Christ should hold. When we're in the wilderness, we learn a lot about what matters most, don't we? You ever have moments in life where all of a sudden it clarifies for you your priorities and what matters most? Any of you like me, you look back 10 years ago to who you were, and you think about the things that mattered most to you 10 years ago, anyone like me a little embarrassed about what used to seem so important and now you have new clarity, I can guarantee you, you did not gain that clarity through comfort. You gained that clarity through the wilderness. And when we are in the wilderness, we learn to appreciate things that we had previously taken for granted. So there's so much value that the wilderness has to offer us in preparing us, but it's so easy to miss it. And why is it easy to miss it? For one obvious reason. It's the wilderness. We don't want to be there. No one wants to be there. And when you're there, it's easy to feel abandoned, forgotten, alone. And I wonder how Jesus felt. 40 days alone. And the, you know, you ever play that game where if you were on a desert island and you could only take one thing with you, what would you take? Or one person with you, who would you bring? Can you imagine that they said to Jesus, Jesus, if you're in the wilderness for 40 days alone and there's only one person that can be with you, who would you choose? 
He wouldn't choose a devil. And that's the one person out there who's trying to keep him company. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And when you find yourself in the wilderness, let me encourage you to remind yourself this and to speak this truth to your own heart. The Spirit has not left me here. The Spirit has led me here. The Spirit has not left me here. The Spirit has led me here. And when we have that change in our perspective, it allows us to get everything out of those preparation moments that we should. And Jesus does. So the Spirit does not keep us from the wilderness. Don't believe the lies out there, the health, the wealth gospel that says, if you serve God, everything will be good. You'll have all the finances that you could possibly need. Your body will be in divine health. Don't believe those things. They're not taught in Scripture. They're not seen in the lives of the followers of Jesus. When you look at those who follow Jesus, they all gave their lives for him. They didn't gain very much on this earth. So don't build our treasure up here. Don't fall in love with the things here, but realize that the Spirit will lead us into what we, where we need to be so he can prepare us for what he needs us to do. Okay, So the Spirit does not keep us from the wilderness. Second point this morning is this. Not only does the Spirit not keep you from the wilderness, the Spirit doesn't keep you from the Word. The Spirit doesn't keep you from the Word. There's an there's a organization named Barna, and what they do is they do surveys. And one of the surveys that they do every year is they try to determine uh, where are the most biblically illiterate cities in America today. So they do a bunch of different surveys to try to determine which cities in our country are least fluent in the scriptures, the Bibles. They don't read the Bible. They don't understand the Bible. And as you might expect, the top 50 cities are almost all up here in the Northeast. We live in a very biblically illiterate culture. In fact, the number one city on this list is Albany, New York. Albany, New York is number one. Also in the top 10 is Plattsburgh. In the top 20 is Buffalo and New York City. And Syracuse is right between the top 25 and top 30 most biblically illiterate cities in the entire country. We have a problem. People don't read the word. They don't know the word. They don't see the word as being relevant. And I'm not even just talking about people that don't go to church. People go to church every Sunday, but from Sunday to Sunday, they don't open up their Bibles. They don't know the word. And the spirit has no interest. And sometimes you get this mentality like, have you ever heard this idea that there's some churches that are word churches? They really teach and preach the word. And there are some churches that are like Holy Spirit churches. They're like really spirit-led churches. Can I just suggest to you that's a false dichotomy? It's either both or neither. You're the word and the spirit, or you're neither. There's no such thing as a word church apart from the spirit. And there's no such thing as a spirit church apart from the word. Well, they they actually do exist. But that's that's not what God has intended for us. He wants us to be a people of the word and the spirit. Probably about five or six years ago, I had the opportunity to write a book for the Assemblies of God, and it was entitled, The Word and the Spirit. And in the introduction, I said, choosing between the Word and the Spirit is like choosing between breathing in and breathing out. <laughs> try it. Not for too long, but, but, but try it. It doesn't work. Biblical literacy. What is biblical literacy? I had the opportunity last year to fly down to Dallas and be a part of a think tank with the Assemblies of God to, to answer the question, How do we deal with this issue in our country and in our churches? And we defined biblical literacy this way. Listen to this definition. Biblical literacy is the ability and the desire, it's both, the ability and the desire to faithfully read, receive, and respond to the scriptures. Let me say that again. Biblical literacy is the ability and the desire to faithfully read, receive, and respond to the scriptures. 
This, this idea of knowing the word is a big deal. After 10 years of research, a company known as Lifeway concluded two things about spiritual maturity, growing up in your faith. Number one, this is what they concluded. They said, number one, Bible engagement is the number one spiritual discipline for growth. The number one spiritual discipline from growth. And number two, Bible engagement has a way of affecting every other discipline. So in other words, people who engage the Bible also give more, they go more, they serve more. It starts with the word. And how did Jesus overcome every temptation? Remember, Jesus was full of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. But where did he turn in his moment of temptation? To the word. He always went to the word. And when Jesus said to the devil, it is written, that is a technical term in the Greek, which implies the full authority and weight of God is behind what Jesus was about to say. And all of Jesus' answers come from the word, specifically from the book of Deuteronomy, which was highly respected in Jesus' time, because of course Jesus didn't have the New Testament. He had the law, he had the Pentateuch, he had the prophets, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy. In fact, when we look at this story in Luke chapter 4, be careful not to miss the definitive parallels between the nation of Israel and the person of Jesus here. There's some real significant uh, commonalities. Did you notice it? They're both in the wilderness. Jesus is in the wilderness, Israel was in the wilderness. The number 40, Israel was in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. And the quotations that Jesus gives to the devil, they come from Deuteronomy, specifically from a short passage in Deuteronomy that were the commands that were given to Israel when they were tested in the wilderness. And where Israel failed, Jesus was going to succeed. And so by quoting scripture back to Satan, Jesus demonstrates the centrality of God's word in defeating Satan's attacks and temptations. So let's look quickly at these three temptations, real quick. The first temptation, the devil says, Jesus, if you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. That's a pretty cool superpower to have. Pretty cool, right? Turning inanimate objects into food. I would, I would gladly take, I'd take that over flying. I would, I would, I would take it over, I would take it over flying. I'd, I'd be pretty happy with that. What we have to notice right here is that the devil tries to rock Jesus at the core of who he is right off the bat because he questions his identity. You, the son of God? Now, in the previous chapter, Jesus has just been baptized in water by his cousin, John the Baptist. And when that happened, it says in Luke 3, 21 and 22, that the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, in the form of a dove, and a voice came from heaven. And here's what God the Father said to God the Son, and it was heard. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. So Jesus walks into the wilderness, led by the Spirit, with those words echoing in his head and echoing in his heart. I'm the beloved Son of God, and he's well pleased with me. And the devil comes up to him at the end of the 40 days and says this, if you are the Son of God. It's been a long time. It's been 40 days, Jesus, since you heard God, the Father, say that. And essentially what he's saying, if you're the Son of God, what in the world are you doing in the wilderness? Really? The Son of God, hungry, starving, out here, alone? And the enemy's temptations with you will start in the exact same place. Satan will always do the same two things. He will always call into question, number one, your identity. Are you... Do you really think that God loves you? And he'll always call into question the goodness of your God. He always will. And so we hold on to our identity. We need to know whose we are. We belong to God so that we know who we are. 
Now, for 40 days, Jesus has gone without food, and it said in the text that Jesus was hungry, and I'm like, no, duh, like 40 days, right? For me, it's about 40 minutes, and I'm hungry, 40 minutes, but Jesus goes 40 days, and he's hungry, and Satan here tempts Jesus to use his power, his supernatural God power, to satisfy his own desires rather than trusting in God to supply all that he needed during this temptation, And many people do the same thing, and be careful with this in your own life, that you don't use control to meet your own selfish needs because you're not actually trusting in God's plan and in God's provision. Jesus is showing here that I'm not the type of Messiah that's going to use my power for my personal agenda and for my personal gain. In fact, Jesus was the type of Messiah who came to lay down his power and to lay down his life so that we could have life. The second temptation... The devil takes Jesus and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He says, I'll give it all to you, all the authority and all the glory. And you know, this is a weird temptation because we have to wrestle with this. Does Satan have that to give? Is that his to really give? And one of the commentators says this, this is helpful. Though Satan claims that all this authority and their glory has been delivered to him, and though in some, say, some sense Satan is the ruler of this world, this claim should not be accepted as fully true. Why? Because Satan is a liar, and he is the father of lies. And in final analysis, all authority ultimately belongs to God. So here's, here's what Satan's doing. He's promising that he can give Jesus something, A, that he can't give him, and B, that is actually already Jesus's. And this is the way he tempts us still today. I'm going to give you something. If you will sacrifice to me this, if you will, if you will choose this path, if you will live this way, then I will give to you. And, and what he promises to give to you, he can't actually provide for you. And the truth is, the very thing that you're often looking for in your pursuit and falling, uh, falling into temptation, the very things you're looking for, you already have in Christ. The security, the acceptance, the value, the worth, it's already been provided for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the enemy's just saying, I'm going to give it to you. And we have to remember, no, we already have it in Christ. And we can only worship Jesus. We don't worship other things. And that's, what, uh, that's basically what Jesus says. We don't worship anything else. We worship the one true God. The third temptation here, he takes him up to Jerusalem. It's interesting because Luke switches the order of the temptations. In Matthew, the, Jerusalem is second and the kingdoms of the world are third. And chronologically, it makes a little more sense because it gets a little bit broader, right? The final one is like cosmic. Why does Luke end with Jerusalem? And Luke ends with Jerusalem because in the gospel of Luke especially, Jesus' constant focus and direction is Jerusalem, to get to Jerusalem. And that's why Luke does Jerusalem last. And it says that the devil took Jesus to a pinnacle of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here And now look at what the devil tries to do. He says, for it is written. And you see, one of the the tools of the enemy is twisting scripture, perverting scripture, taking scripture out of context. Because this this reference, which is from Psalm 91, 11 to 12, the psalmist did not mean for a person to try to force God to protect him, to try to test God. Will you protect me? It was meant in danger, God protects his people. But don't put God to the test. And so he brings them up to the pinnacle, which was probably the southeast corner of the temple because it overlooked the Kidron Valley. So it was a 150 feet plunge into the Kidron Valley. And the, the enemy says to Jesus, throw yourself down and, and God will rescue you. 
Well, Jesus' approach to Scripture here shows a greater sensitivity to its original context because what he quotes here, which is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, which is from Exodus 17.7, this is when the Israelites had tested God at Massa by refusing to accept that God was among them until he did a sign for them. So it's the same idea here. The devil is tempting Jesus to do the sensational, to do the supernatural, to gather a crowd, to be seen, to set himself apart. But Jesus knows when he looks at the Old Testament account, that's not how God proves things through a sign. He's here and I trust that he's here. So three temptations, three responses. Jesus, full of the spirit, doesn't rely on his experience, doesn't rely on his feelings, doesn't need a fresh word. He goes to the written word. And I know that God still speaks to his people and God still speaks through his people, amen? We still believe that God is a speaking God. However, be careful that you're, not more, that you're not more interested in a fresh word than you are in the written word. Because the fresh word has to be interpreted, it has to be judged, but this is sure. This word is sure. And sometimes people, especially at the beginning of 2019, were like, I need a word for this year. I need a fresh word for 2019. If God gives you a word, great, hold on to it. But don't neglect this word to go chase after some sort of special word. This is what our foundation is. If God chooses to speak through a prophet, through a person, fine, receive it, test it, uh, hold it up against scripture, he still does that. However, be careful that we don't become a people that are chasing after words when God's already given us his word, his true and his sure and his good word. We need to be the word. The spirit will not keep you from the word. I don't ever want to hear about people saying, well, I'm so full of the spirit that I need less of the word. The more that you are led by the Spirit, the more that you will be in the Word. And why do we need the Word? Because we need reminders every day. How about you? Do you ever need a reminder about who you are in Christ? Do you ever need a reminder about the promises of God? Do you ever need a reminder about who you belong to? And we also need the Word because in the Scriptures we find a story, and it's the only story that makes sense of our story. And if you don't plug your story into this story, then you'll look for other stories. And the world has lots of other stories to offer you, lots of other narratives, narratives like this. Look out for number one. Be a self-made person. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. Live for pleasure. Truth is up for you to define. Those stories are out there. Those narratives are out there. And we'll start plugging our lives and defining our lives by those stories if we're not in tune with this story. So before we get to our last point, let me ask you this application question. What is your plan to grow this year? in biblical literacy. What is your plan? Because it will not happen on accident. It just won't. What's your plan? That's why we gather like this on Sunday morning so that we can learn from the scriptures together. That's why we have Wednesday night grow classes for adults so you can come out. And you know what we do on Wednesday nights? We go through scripture and we have a group discussion and we learn together. It's a laboratory environment. It's not a lecture environment. It's a laboratory environment where we're interacting with the Bible and we're learning and teaching how to study scripture. Some of you really would benefit from the Wednesday night grow class because you really struggle with knowing how do I read and interpret scripture? Don't struggle alone. This is why we offer these things. We don't, we don't put things on the calendar so that I can be busier. We put things on the calendar so that we can help you be a disciple of Jesus Christ and make disciples. What's your reading plan look like? There's an app that you should have on your phone called YouVersion. It's the best app out there for reading plans. You put it on your phone, it suggests all different types of reading plans you can use. What are your devotion, what's your devotional life look like? And be careful, let me give one quick warning and then we'll get to the last point. Don't let reading devotions, as good as they are, I, read, I try to read three different devotions every single day, don't let it replace reading scripture. Devotions are great, 
But make sure you're still reading scripture. The Spirit doesn't want to keep you from the Word. The Spirit wants you in the Word. And the last thing this morning we'll close is this. The Spirit doesn't keep you from the wilderness. The Spirit doesn't keep you from the Word. And the Spirit doesn't keep you from the world. Now, that might sound, that might sound, like something, that might sound weird at first, but let me explain. It says that after the temptation, verse 14, what did Jesus do? Did he stay out there? Did he stay isolated? Did he stay away from the people? Did he look at the people and go, ah, I don't know, it's messy. I don't, I don't know. These, I, these people, you know, there's a lot of temptation out there. I'll stay out here by myself. It says in verse 14 that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He went back where he came from. And then the report went out through all the surrounding countries, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. You know, the nature of preparation is that its purpose is not fulfilled until you're in the next season. Does that make sense? The nature of preparation is that its purpose is not fulfilled until you're in the next season. During Christmas break, I took Lilia, my 10-year-old, to the YMCA in Baldensville a few times. They have a little soccer field there, and she's placed indoor soccer. And uh, I was trying to teach her a couple things. And one of the things I've really been working with Lilia on in soccer is that once she gets the ball, she panics, and she just kicks it. And she does a good job, but she just kicks it as hard as she can. And she kicks in the right direction, so it's not bad. But I'm trying to teach her, like, once you get the ball, like, take a breath. And you have time. And look around. And make a decision. Sometimes the best thing to do is to kick it, but sometimes the best thing to do is to dribble a little bit and to move it yourself. And uh, I'm trying to prepare her and prepare her. And then yesterday she had a game, and there was one moment in the second half where this ball came to her, and I knew she was all alone. She was all by herself, and I was thinking, this is it. And she controlled the ball, and she did it. She did it. She didn't just kick the ball as fast as she could. She took a second, and she looked around, and she did a couple touches, and then she found a teammate, and she passed it to it. I was like, yeah. The nature of preparation is that its purpose isn't fulfilled until you're in the next season. All that preparation in the YMCA, it didn't really mean much until it happened in a game. When Jesus prepares us in the wilderness, and when the Spirit leads you into the wilderness, he doesn't lead you there to keep you there. He leads you there to bring you back and to send you out. After overcoming the temptation, Jesus didn't stay away from the people. He went to the people. Why? Because the Spirit is a sending spirit. The spirit sends us. God saves us and he sanctifies us not to separate us from people, but to send us to people. And don't ever believe the lie for a second that because you're a Christian, you need to be apart from people. You need to be away from people. You gotta isolate yourself from people who don't think like you and believe like you and act like you. That's not why God has saved you. God has saved you and sanctified you for one purpose, to send you. He's ascending God. He sent his son. His son sent his spirit, and his spirit is now sending us. So in 2019, who is the spirit sending you to? Who in your workplace? Who in your neighborhood? Who in your family? Who is the spirit sending you to? Our vision here at Trinity is gospel transformation, radical life change, heart change, gospel transformation in every area of our lives. God, start with us and in every life in our area. And we mean it. Every 60,000 people that live in the town of Clay, that's our vision. Every single life transformed by the power of gospel and the beauty of Jesus. How are we gonna do it? We gotta be sent. We can't just call them, we can't, it's good to invite, 
but we have to be sent. In 2019, can I tell you a couple things we're going to do to try to fulfill our vision in practical ways? We're going to be, you're going to start seeing this, and I'm giving you a heads up because it's going to look different in this room for the next two months, three months. We're going to be renovating. We're going to be updating the stage, the sound booth, and the sound systems. Not really been touched in 20 years. And so we're investing some resources into this property. Why? So that we can better accomplish our mission. So we can serve this community and serve our church even better. So we can do what God's called us to do. We're partnering with two local elementary schools, Willowfield and Sioux Road Elementary. And I contacted their principals. And I said, I want you to know that in Trinity Assembly of God's 2019 budget, we've set aside $1,000 for both your schools. And this is just money for you to get supplies that you, your teachers can't get. You know, the funding has been cut again. So we have teachers who are spending money out of their own pockets to provide for their students. And we said, we're committed to gospel transformation, which isn't just people coming to know Jesus, although that's part of it, of course, the most important part of it, but it's also, we want to make this community a better place to live. And so we're investing. Your giving is going towards us being able to say, so anytime they need something, the principal will simply email me an Amazon link to something they need. We'll order it. We'll ship it to them. And they have up to $1,000 in 2019 to spend. It's our way of saying, we love this community. We're committed to this community. We're serving this community because we're a sent people with a purpose and with a mission. And here's the other thing we're going to do, and this is a big one. In April, we're going to begin offering on Sunday mornings two services. Two services beginning in April. Now, that's going to be a shift. That's going to be a change. Can I let you know that Trinity Assembly has done two services before? This is not the first. How many were there when Trinity did two services in the other building? And why did Pastor Tom choose to do two buildings uh, or two services for about two years back then, probably in 93, 94, 95 that time. Why? Because it's unacceptable that people in our community don't have a, sit, a seat to sit in in this room. And it's unacceptable that there's not enough parking spots for the people that want to come here to be here. And so we're not going to two services because we need more to do. We don't need more to do. We're going to two services because we believe we're people that have been sent by the Spirit. And there's a work to do. And we're gonna, here's what we're going to do in 2019. We're, gonna, we're going to set the stage and we're going to make room. That's going to be our two, two things you're going to hear over and over. We're going to set the stage and see what God wants to do, and we're going to make room. We're going to make room for people, your neighbors, your coworkers, your people that go to your school that need Jesus to walk into here and to encounter the goodness of Jesus, the grace that's found in him, the forgiveness, the hope, the mercy. And God's going to use us. He's going to grow us. He's going to stretch us but it's going to be for his glory and for the good of our community. Let's pray together.